go ahead and get started. Final exam a week from tomorrow. So almost, almost there to the end. Um, tomorrow we do have exam four. It's the only other thing coming up this week. Um, uh, that homework exam four and then homework seven also due tomorrow. So those are the last two things for this week. The rest of it goes from the solar observation project due Monday through the final exam on Thursday of next week, and that's the end. So I've actually managed to squeeze everything else up there for the rest of the rest of the semester. Uh, there'll be two quizzes that are available tomorrow. The last two on chapters four, 13, 14, which we're done with, 15 and 16, which we're working on. So you may want to wait till Monday on quiz 7 when I've gone through all of chapter 16. But other than that, you'll have everything else in there. And then your third article review uh, due on Tuesday. There'll be a quiz in class, another in-class quiz on Wednesday, as well as homework 8, the last of the homeworks due on Wednesday. And then the iTunes quizzes will be available starting on Monday and will go through the day of the final exam. So if you really want to take the final exam and then go do them, you can, or if you want to take them before. But they'll be available as soon as we hit the, hit the 12 pictures. So iTunes quiz 3 will go through the Monday picture, or the Sunday picture, which will get us 12. And then iTunes quiz 4 will just take you a random selection of something from May 20th till, what is it, Sunday the 23rd. So it'll just take a 12 random pictures of the ones you've already seen and give you those questions again. And that way you'll get those quizzes. Uh, once we get through those, once you get through here, two of the quizzes will be dropped. So if you skip those two, it can't hurt your quiz grade, but it can help you. So if you don't do them, they're going to end up being the two with zeros and be dropped, so it won't, won't hurt you. But if you take them and you get better than something else, then it'll drop another quiz from earlier, earlier on. So two of the quizzes will end up being dropped. And then the final exam is the last class meeting. You will have, again, the full two hours to do that. And I'll go over that a little bit more, give you a little bit more information as to exactly what it will be um, coming up next week. So, questions? No? no? Alrighty. Well, our picture of the day for today, a beautiful panoramic picture of the Milky Way over Crater Lake in Oregon. Uh, crater Lake is actually a volcanic crater. Think of cra when you think of craters, especially in this class, we tend to think of an impact crater where a meteor smashed into and hollowed out the crater. That's not what this, this is actually the volcanic crater. So at the peak of a volcano where the lava would have come out has since uh, solidified and gone dormant and now it's been filled with water from you know, runoff of the uh, various ices and snows that are around it and it's filled it up and made it a lake. And so that's what we're taking the picture over. And then you're seeing the Milky Way galaxy, which we just finished talking about uh, last time. And the Milky Way galaxy stretching across the entire scene there from the left hand side up above to the right. Um, you can see the dark patches of the Milky Way, the dark dusty patches where there's a lot of dusty material blocking out the light. The center of the Milky Way galaxy is over the trees here so you can see that there's a little bit more, a little bit brighter, stands out a little bit more than the rest of the Milky Way but not a lot. Not a lot by comparison as compared to how many stars are really there and how much material is really there as compared to the rest of the, the, rest of the galaxy. And the other thing that we're seeing here is the air glow. So this greenish glow is not, not the aurora. Aurora is caused by charged particles from the sun striking the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, the air glow is similar in that it's caused by sunlight. But during the day, sunlight excites the atoms in the Earth's upper atmosphere and causes them to be ionized. Ionized just means you stripped an electron off of the oxygen atom. So instead of being just plain oxygen with 80 electrons, it's had an electron stripped off. When that electron, when it cools off at night, the electron recombines and starts to, and we get a little bit of a glow here. So it's similar in terms of actually the mechanism that it's forming within the atmosphere, but what's actually causing it is a little bit different in the case of the air glow that we're seeing here as compared to the aurora, which is the charged particles for the sun, and it's more of a continuous process. You get all the nice shimmering sheets over a longer period of time than you get with the air glow. So, number of different little, little things there. The crater in the front, volcanic crater in the front, uh, the Milky Way galaxy up behind it, 
And if you want to identify all those constellations, the nice thing about these, you could actually put your mouse over it and it now tells you where everything is. So I told you where our center of our galaxy is in the constellation of Sagittarius. It's right about over here would be the center of our galaxy. And then the other constellations that the Milky Way passes through, Aquila, Cygnus, and Cassiopeia up in the north here are the other constellations that happen to pass through it. There's Ursa Minor and Polaris, the North Star. And there's the most distant object in the picture, the Andromeda Galaxy, about two million light years away. Um, probably the most easily the most distant object from all these other stars that we're seeing are within our own galaxy. Uh, different portions of our galaxy, things that might be tens of thousands even of light years away, although many of them are much closer than that. But nothing comes close to the two million light years of the Andromeda Galaxy, which is actually something you can see if you know where to look and you're at a pretty dark site, you can actually see it with the naked eye. So you can actually see something that's two million light years away without a telescope. Won't look like a big galaxy to you, it'll look like a little fuzzy spot on the sky, and it's got to be pretty dark for you to be able to see that. So you know, going out here, here on campus at, at night, you're not going to see it. It's not good. The telescope would be able to, but just to be able to see it, you would not be able to do that. So, question? Questions? No? All right. We're ready to go. Let's see if we can get through all, get through the rest of chapter 15 today. And that's what's covered for the exam. So let's see, where am I going? So we're going to look at galaxies here. We're talk, we talked about the Milky Way galaxy last time primarily and finished that up. And today I'm going to go through and talk about other galaxies. In fact, we went through all the different types of galaxies last time. Uh, we went through the ellipticals and the spirals and the barred spirals and the lenticulars and the irregular galaxies. But now we want to look at how those galaxies are distributed. How are they distributed out in space? So first thing we're going to look at is if we want to find out how they're distributed, it's easy to see how they're distributed on the sky. right? I can map out where all the galaxies are in the sky and that's one thing. But if I really want to find out how they're distributed in space, I've got to measure how far away they are. I've got to find ways to get distances to these galaxies. Now, Cepheid variables were the last thing we'd used in the distance ladder, were the last thing we used, and that allowed you to get measurements about to 25 megaparsecs, about 80 million light years. Sounds like we're getting out there forever, but 80 million light years or so. is really nothing compared to you know about 13.7 billion light years for the most distant objects in the universe so we're measuring things that are very very far away compared to what we've been doing but we've only been able to scratch our local neighborhood in terms of di actual distances so we need some more measures more measurements of distance. Most of the galaxies that we're seeing are a lot further away than 80 million light years. They're not that close. A lot of the ones, certainly the Andromeda galaxy that we just looked at was, but some of the others are not near that close. So two examples that we use are one is the Tully-Fisher relation which says that there's a relationship between how a galaxy rotates. For, for a spiral galaxy, they're rotating and there's a rotation, relationship between how fast it's rotating and its luminosity. So the whole goal of these is to find, we need to find some way to get the true luminosity of the object. If we know its luminosity, we can get how bright it appears to be. That's the easy part. And once we do that, we can figure out the distance. So if we can measure something, look at a galaxy and measure with the Doppler shift, how fast it's rotating. How fast is one side coming towards us? How fast is the other side going away? Gives us a measure of its rotation. That gives us a luminosity, a true brightness, how bright this galaxy really is. We can then combine that with the apparent magnitude, how bright it appears to be, and determine a distance to it. So it's another method of being able to get the distances. Of course, this Using this depends on knowing some distances to other galaxies. Yes, ma'am? What's the MPC standard? Million parsecs. Okay. Megaparsecs or million parsecs. Okay. So this depends, in order to use the Tully-Fisher relationship, 
we have to know the brightnesses of some of the galaxies. It had to be found by looking at closer galaxies. So there had to be, look, you have to look at the galaxies that we could measure based on Cepheid variables. In order to calibrate the Cepheid variables and to be able to use that, we had to go back to the um, spectroscopic parallax. We had to have some of those determined. In order to use the spectroscopic parallax, we had to have a number of stars distances determined by regular parallax. So each of these steps is building on the previous one in order to get us a little bit further out in the universe in terms of measuring distances. Now the, the last, next to the last one, there's actually one more that will come up here in a little bit later today, one more distance measurement. But next to the last one is a type 1 supernovae. A type 1 supernova, if we recall, was a white dwarf star that reached its mass limit and exploded. The nice thing about them is, is that they all have exactly the same brightness. Why? Because they're exactly the same thing going on. A type 2 supernova could be a very massive star exploding. Might be 20 times the mass of the sun, might be 30, might be 25, might be 40, might be 50. Depending on how massive it was, might change how bright it actually gets. A type 1 supernova always is the same thing. It's always a white dwarf star always at exactly the same mass, 1.4 times the mass of the sun. So we not only know that it was a white dwarf star, but we know exactly how massive it was. Because if it was a lot less massive than that, it would have no reason to ever explode. It wouldn't go beyond its critical limit. So they're all exactly, the process is exactly the same for each one. A white dwarf star right at that limit collected a little bit too much mass and tore itself apart. So that means that every single one would get to exactly the same brightness. So once we see a supernova explosion in a galaxy and we identify it as a type 1, we can do that by looking at the spectrum. The spectra are a little bit different between the two. In fact, type 1 supernova doesn't show hydrogen. Because it was a white dwarf star, all the hydrogen was long since gone. So we can identify what type of supernova is. As soon as I identify it, I know exactly how bright it is. I know how bright it really is. I measure how bright it appears to be and I can get the distance to that galaxy. Bad part about it, you got to wait for the supernova to occur. So you can't just go and watch and pick out a galaxy and I want to know how far this galaxy is away. Well you can do that and you got to sit there and watch and watch and watch and that supernova might occur tomorrow, might occur 10 years from now, might occur 100 or 1000. There's no guarantee. You can't just pick out a galaxy and measure the distance to it. You're confined to the ones that happen to have the supernovae occur. Now there's a good number of them, but you can't do any specific one by this process. So this is showing the Tully-Fisher relationship, what they're looking at. And when a galaxy is rotating and we're looking from over here, we see part of it receding from us, moving away. That means its light's going to be redshifted. We see part of it approaching us, getting closer, meaning that its light is blue shifted. The light from the center of it isn't rotating, right? It's rotating, but it's going, not going towards or away from us because it's going this direction at that point. That's not going to be shifted. So you're going to see this shift and this shift and this shift. And that's going to give you what the observer is going to see is when you look at this whole thing from the galaxy, some of these galaxies are very small incredibly tiny little specks on the sky, even through a powerful telescope, you're going to get all of the edges merged together. You're going to get this, the receding edge and the approaching edge all merged together in a spectrum. And you're going to see a very broad line because you're seeing this red shifted line. Imagine that's over here, the middle line in the center, and this line in the blue. When you add them all up together, you get one big broad line. And how broad that line is depends on how fast things are rotating. If you rotate faster, this is going to be stretched out more to the red. This is going to be more to the blue. Your line is going to get broader and broader. So that's what the astronomers are looking at when they look at these galaxies trying to measure their rotations. You can't always look at, you know, here I could look at it. Here I could look at one side of the galaxy and look at the other side of the galaxy. But when you get out to the edges, to the limit of what this, where this process will work, you're going to see the whole galaxy all at once. You're not, it's going to be just a very tiny little point here and you're trying to measure that. Instead, you're going to measure this broadening of the lines. The broader they are, the faster the galaxy is rotating. The faster the galaxy is rotating, the brighter it is. So it works. Again, this one only works for spiral galaxies, so these methods are getting very particular. 
that this one works for spiral galaxy, but if you want to determine the distance to an elliptical galaxy, it's not going to help you. The type 1 supernovae are going to help you as long as a type 1 supernova happens to occur. They can occur in any type of galaxy, but until one occurs, you're stuck. If one doesn't occur here for a thousand years, you have no way to determine the distance to that specific galaxy using that method. So now we're getting out a little bit further out in the universe. Um, I'm going to go over this to all probably twice today, so I'm going to skim through it this time. I'll go back to it in a little bit more detail. But radar ranging within the solar system very nearby. Stellar parallax is the very direct method that actually measures the distance to some of the nearby stars, works to about 200 parsecs. Spectroscopic parallax using the HR diagram gets us out to about 10,000 parsecs, about 35,000 light years. Variable stars, the Cepheids and the RLIRES, got us out to 25 million parsecs, about 80 million light years. The Tully-Fisher relationship, we can get out even further, to almost 10 times further, 200 million parsecs. And the standard candles or the type 1 supernovae get us out to 1 gigaparsec or 1 billion parsecs. 1 billion parsecs, a little over 3 billion light years. So the supernovae get us out to, say, about 3.3, roughly, billion light years. We're getting about a quarter of the way out to the edge of the universe. A lot better than we were. Variable stars were getting us out 80 million light years. Stellar parallax and spectroscopic parallax are pretty much confined to our galaxy in order to determine those distances. Now we're getting out a, third, you know, a quarter of the way of, to the entire edge of the universe. Still doesn't help us if a supernova occurs in a galaxy that is more distant than this, and there's plenty of them, we still have no way to be able to see it. It will be, be too faint for even our telescopes to be able to detect it today. But we're getting a lot further out there. And we've got one more method to fill in here at the top, which really gets us out to the edge of the universe as far as we can possibly, as long as we can actually see the galaxy, we can actually determine a distance to it. So there's one more step that we'll be adding here shortly. So what do we look at when we see how these are distributed? When we start measuring distances, again, the nearby ones are relatively easy. We can use things like uh, Cepheid variables to determine their distances, our, our Lyrae stars, if they're present. And what we find is, here's our Milky Way galaxy. We put ourselves at the center. That doesn't mean anything particular. It's just a reference point. But referring to the Milky Way galaxy, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine or so small galaxies that are orbiting around us. These are all little tiny galaxies, uh, dwarf galaxies. They could be irregulars, like the Magellanic Clouds. They could be dwarf elliptical galaxies. So a number of different galaxies. But they're all little satellite galaxies to our own Milky Way. So just like we have the sun at the center and planets orbiting around it, when we get out here to this little part of the universe, we have the Milky Way galaxy at the center with a number of little galaxies orbiting around it. Now if we zoom out a little bit further, we go here, there's that little section again, there's our Milky Way, and there's these galaxies, there's a few more scattered around. And then if we get a little further out, there's Andromeda Galaxy and M33, another uh, galaxy over in that, in that general, part, general vicinity. Those are two, two more spiral galaxies that make up part of what we call our local group of galaxies. This is our little cluster of galaxies. Um, they tend to cluster together in that you get a nice big galaxy and it'll have some little satellites around it. We see the same thing with the Andromeda Galaxy and M33, that there are plenty of galaxies there. There's lots of little galaxies orbiting around them. So lots of these galaxies have little satellites. These satellite galaxies don't always last all that long. They eventually will combine with the galaxy as they're orbiting. Their orbits will eventually change enough that they can end up being uh, coalesced into the main galaxy. So the Milky Way has likely had more, more of these in the past and has slowly been consuming them, slowly been picking them up and adding them to the mass of our own galaxy. Andromeda doing the same thing. And in fact, even the larger galaxies will eventually merge together. Andromeda is on a collision course with the Milky Way. 
Not in the near future. We're talking again many billions of years in the future. But Andromeda is getting closer and closer. Eventually the two galaxies will collide and possibly coalesce into one even larger galaxy. So we've got billions of years to wait, wait on that though. So this, this is what we call our local group of galaxies. There are three main galaxies in it. That's the Milky Way, the Andromeda Galaxy, and M33. Those are the three large spiral galaxies. If you add in all the satellites of them, all the smaller, the dwarf and the irregular galaxies, we have about 45 galaxies total form our local group. What we call our local group of galaxies. That's just us, the couple near, nearest galaxies, and their, and their satellites. And that's about 45. That's a very, very small, uh, as we call a galaxy cluster. So galaxies tend to cluster together into groups, just as we saw star clusters. We see galaxy clusters. Uh, they're held together by their own gravity. So there's enough gravity between them. They don't just fly off into space and spread apart over billions of years. So the fact that they're still here today means that there must be enough gravity to actually hold them together. So this is the first example of a cluster of a cluster that we see. It's a very small cluster with only 45 galaxies. There are a lot more galaxies than this in the universe, and we're going to see clusters that have you know hundreds or thousands of galaxies within them. But this is just our own group, and you notice one thing that's missing from it. It's got some spiral. It's got a lot of three spiral galaxies and a lot of little small galaxies. It does not have any big elliptical galaxies. Or any, so any large elliptical galaxies, something that's missing from our local group. But we do see those further out. This is another, this is a relatively nearby cluster called the Virgo cluster. Happens to be in the direction of the constellation of Virgo, how it got its name. And the large galaxy there is M87 is the large galaxy at the center. That's a great giant elliptical galaxy. And all around this, most of what you're looking at in this image are galaxies. So they just look like little points of light, but most of those, uh, looking at a closer image, most of what you're seeing, there's some stars in the foreground, but most of that is actually galaxies in this giant cluster. Now as compared to the 45 galaxies in our cluster, this is a much larger one containing you know, over 3,000 galaxies. And some of those, like M87, are much, much larger than our own. That's a giant elliptical galaxy, which would dwarf our own Milky Way. There are also a lot of little tiny galaxies there. There are spiral galaxies. You can see some of the flattened ones with the distinct bulge there. And you can see some of those scattered around. There are some that are more, elli that are more elliptical, such as this. Uh, perhaps, and I'm not sure without looking up the classification, that could be, doesn't seem to show much spiral structure, so maybe that's a lenticular galaxy. But you see a variety of different types of galaxies. And in fact, the whole range that we talked about last time is present in the Virgo cluster. It's got a much bigger grouping of uh, galaxies than we have in our own local group. And in fact, we're just at the very edge. So clusters, we can consider clusters grouped into superclusters in our local group. And the Virgo cluster and some others actually make part of a great supercluster. So a cluster of clusters of galaxies. So they get to see, they get to see them on bigger and bigger scales. All right, now we're getting up to almost 100 years ago that this was discovered. Um, universal recession. That galaxies, in fact every galaxy we look at, one or two exceptions such as Andromeda Galaxy when there's gravitational forces between us and it that cause it to be approaching us. Every single galaxy is moving away from us. And there's a relationship between that galaxy how fast it's moving away from us, and how far away it is. So what Hubble found back in the 1920s was that when he looked at these galaxies, he found that there was a redshift. This is the, this is the set of lines here. And there's the same pair in another galaxy, and the same pair, and the same pair. And then way off here in this much more distant galaxy. As he measured those, he found that there was a relationship, and that the galaxies that were moving, everything was moving away from us. but everything, the further away objects are actually moving away faster. Now that has nothing to do with our galaxy. It has nothing to do with galaxies trying to get away from us. It wouldn't matter which galaxy you observed this from, you'd see exactly the same thing. And you can do this with a, 
a balloon, if you draw, draw little dots on a balloon to represent galaxies, and then blow up the balloon, measure the distances between those dots, you'll notice that no matter which one you pick, every other, ga- every other ga- dot is getting further away from it. And that's what we're seeing here, that, there is the, that this, no matter where you look, from our point of view, everything's moving away from us, but if we went out to this distant galaxy in Hydra and made the same measurements, we'd find out that everything was moving away from that galaxy. So it's not that we're in any special position that we notice this, it's just a note that the universe, the entire universe is expanding and everything is getting further away from everything else. But what it helps us with is that there's a relationship between the distance, here's the distances that have been determined, 17 million parsecs, 210, 310, 560, 870, and how fast they're moving away from us. So that if you plot these out, you get a nice straight line that tells us the further away galaxies are moving away faster. Now the nice thing with that is that it's something very easy to measure. In order to determine a distance to one of these galaxies, the only thing I have to do is be able to have it bright enough that I can get a spectrum of it, and to be able to identify spectral lines. Find out how far shifted they are away, and that gives me a way to determine the distance. So doesn't require waiting for a supernova, doesn't require, you know, has doesn't have to be a spiral galaxy. In fact, that's the one, the top one is the great galaxy in the large elliptical galaxy in Virgo cluster that we mentioned. It doesn't require anything specific, it only requires that I can see a spectrum and that I can measure that redshift. As long as I can do that, I can then determine the distance to the galaxy. Well, maybe something else. Maybe it also depends on the fact that this really applies as you get out to the edges of the universe. We'll look in chapters 15 and 16 what happens when you get to the very edges and how things are actually changing there. But for the most part, for everything else we're going to look at, this works very well. So what Hubble found, here's for the five galaxies that we looked at in previous plot. And if you plot their distance determined by another method, versus their velocity, how fast they're moving away from us, it gives you a pretty good straight line. If we add in lots of other galaxies, we continue. So it actually gives us even better. So a little bit larger sample of galaxies, they all seem to fit this pretty well. They're not perfect. There's going to be measurement errors that will throw some of those off. There might be some galaxies that have unusually high velocities moving in one direction or another that will skew it a little bit. But overall, it gives us a pretty good estimate that says that if I can measure this velocity, that's easy to, all I got to do is get a spectrum. All I have to do is get a spectrum, measure how far the lines are shifted, and boom, I know how far away, how fast that galaxy is moving away from us. Once I do that, I can just draw a line across here and say, well, it's moving at 60,000 kilometers per second. That means it is so many million parsecs away. So it's a great way to get distances out to the very edge of the universe. So putting it into equation form, that says that the recessional velocity or the velocity um, velocity of recession is equal to some constant H0, it's Hubble's constant, named after Hubble who found this, times the distance. Once we figure out what this number is, once we know the constant, and we can determine that one pretty well, all I have to do is measure this velocity, how fast is that galaxy receding from us, take that number, divide it by Hubble's constant, and I now have the distances. Hubble's constant isn't known perfectly, maybe around 50 to 80 kilometers per second per megaparsec as the units for it. Meaning that a galaxy one megaparsec away would be receding at about, uh, go in the, say about 60 kilometers per second. A galaxy another megaparsec away, that's two megaparsecs away, would be receding twice as fast. Ten megaparsecs away would be receding ten times as fast. So that's all this is telling us, is, is this a relationship between those two. So it's around 50 to 80. 
Sounds like we don't know it well at all, right? It's actually narrowed down 20, 20, 20, 30 years ago. It varied more between about 50, a group of astronomers who thought it was closer to 50, a group of astronomers who thought it was closer to about 150. So more recent measurements have begun to narrow it down, and it gets down much closer. <coughs> but we can still get a pretty good idea or an estimate of it and get relatively accurate measurements. Plus, they're the only measurements we can get. When we get out to the very edges of the universe, we don't have any other way to get distances. We can't see individual stars in the galaxy to use any of our other methods, We're not even including supernovae. So if we can't see that, this is our only distance estimate, estimate that will work. The Hubble's law works better. Unlike all the other distances, it works better when the object is further away. Because the nearby objects, if we're here, uh, let's see, our galaxy is here, and we're looking at a nearby galaxy, it's going to be moving away at some speed because of the expansion of the universe, but it's also going to have some random velocity. It's just moving in space as well, so it might actually be moving in some other direction as well. Could be moving towards us, could be moving away from us. So a little of this will be added to, or if it's going in the other direction, subtracted from the actual overall universal expansion. So when the, when, the ga- when the galaxy we're looking at is very close to us, that makes a big difference. You can actually overwhelm it to the case of the Andromeda galaxy where it's actually physically moving towards us. It's got enough individual velocity of its own that it is not moving. Now if we look further out, And I'm going to be out of space to do distance here, but if we did something many times further away, uh, I'm going to do it next to it, but imagine this is many times further away. It's expanding a lot faster, so it's moving away from us at a much quicker rate than this galaxy was, this one being many times further away. It still might have those same random velocities. Might be moving that direction or might be moving in that direction. But as it gets further and further away, if it's moving at... Uh, to give numbers that we're more familiar with, if it's moving at, um, if you're moving, if you're driving a car at 20 miles an hour and have a random velocity of 10, you might be going 10. You might be going 10 miles an hour. You might be going 30 miles an hour. But if you're going, you know, 70 miles an hour, then it becomes 60 or 80. It's the sa- it's a much less smaller percentage, so it doesn't make as much of a difference. So these little random velocities don't make a big difference when you get out towards the edges of the universe. So that helps us. Other things actually kick in that affect us when we get further out towards the edge of the universe, though. And again, we'll look at those coming up in the next two chapters. So there's our final step on the distance ladder. That really we had, again, just went through a lot of this, but I'll emphasize it again. Within about one astronomical unit, or a little bit further, we can actually use radar. So you can actually send a signal out from Earth and be able to get a signal and measure distances that way. Doesn't help us much beyond about a light hour. So a light hour, uh, distance from the Earth to the Sun is about eight light minutes. So you've got about, what, six, seven, seven, eight times the distance from the Earth to the Sun, out to seven or eight astronomical units distance. That gets us out to, from the Earth, about out to Jupiter. Saturn would be beyond useful for that. The next one, this is the only direct method, parallax. is the only direct method to get a distance to a star. That's measuring its shifting position. That is simply due to geometry, and that gives us an exact measurement of the distance. Beyond that, we go to spectroscopic parallax. Again, it's based on this, but we can then measure the spectral class of a star when we can identify a star, find out where it is on the HR diagram. Is it on the main sequence? If it is, then we can immediately determine its brightness and therefore its distance. Further out, we used variable stars. RR Lyrae or Stepheid stars helped us with the nearest galaxies. For more distant stars, we looked at the, everything we were just looking at here. Uh, Tully-Fisher relationship, how fast is the galaxy rotating, is related to how bright it was. Type 1 supernovae helped us to out to a billion parsecs, several billion light years but still not quite to the edge of the universe. And for the rest of that, the only thing we have out to use there is Hubble's law, 
which relates the recessional velocity, how fast that is receding from us, and its distance. So within about a billion parsecs and about 200 million parsecs for these, beyond 100 million parsecs, once we get rid of those random velocities or make them small enough, then we can use Hubble's law to determine the distances to those most distant galaxies. But again, every step depends on, one, uh, on the ones before it. So if you have errors in determining your parallax, it throws off your distances way up the top of the, up the, top of the ladder because you need those in order to calibrate and determine all of the other steps. All right. Now on to active galaxies. <coughs> Excuse me. Now as I said, they're, they're, they, active galaxies in some ways makes it sound like they're rare. That's not necessarily the case. There are about 20 or 25 percent, so up to a quarter of the galaxies that just don't fit that whole Hubble classification that we went through last time, they're too bright. They're just brighter than they should be. And these are what we call active galaxies. They're actually brighter and they emit different types of radiation. So here's a spectrum of a normal galaxy. Looks just like the spectrum of a star. It drops off very, very quickly. When you get off towards high energies, towards X-rays and gamma rays over here, it drops off very quickly. It gets very bright up in the visible and then comes down into the radio. Now that makes sense because galaxies, the typical galaxy, is made up of a whole bunch of stars. So if you add up all that starlight together, it's going to look like the same general type of spectrum that we see for a star. What we see in an active galaxy is something different. Active galaxy is more level, emits a lot of visible light, more so than a normal galaxy, but it also emits more infrared by a lot more, more radio, really a lot more, and way over here on x-rays, extreme amounts. So it's emitting a lot more energy overall. It would look a lot brighter, but plus it is also emitting different types of radiation. It's emitting a lot of x-rays. A normal galaxy, yeah, it emits some x-rays, but not a whole lot of x-rays. We can detect them from our galaxy only because we're so close. We're right here. We looked at x-rays from the center of our galaxy. But trying to look at them from more distant galaxies, normal galaxies, almost nothing is emitted. When we look at an active galaxy, we see a very bright X-ray source. We see a very bright radio source. Most galaxies also don't emit a lot of radio radiation. So we don't see a whole lot there either. So different, different brightness and different types of radiation that are being emitted. And that's what we call, we call it a non-stellar radiation meaning that it's not formed by stars. That's not just the light of stars that is being added up together to give us the light of this active galaxy. It's something different. It's something that's not being created by just stars. Typical galaxy is stellar radiation. Add up all the light of all those stars together, that's pretty much what you see when you look at the spectrum of that galaxy. Uh, many of these galaxies are Perhaps some of these galaxies are actually interacting with others, so they're in the process of colliding. Now, when galaxies collide, and we'll look at this in a little bit more detail uh, coming up probably in the next chapter, when they collide, they don't collide as we think about a collision. You know, we think of a collision as two cars colliding and smash and it's done and over. Well, galaxies do that, but they do it on their own time frame, meaning that a galaxy collision, instead of taking seconds, or minutes, or hours, or days. We're talking about collisions that take hundreds of millions of years. So very big distances, very large objects, they'll slowly pass through each other and pass by each other and interact. And that will actually trigger uh, star formation. As those galaxies collide, gravity will start to condense some of those gas clouds and form stars, as we talked about earlier. Some of those are what we call a starburst galaxy. But the ones we want to look at right now are things that are going on at the center of the galaxy. So you can form an active galaxy by galaxies colliding together and increasing their amount of star formation over what would be considered a normal rate. For a typical galaxy, if the galaxies are colliding together, you're smashing more dust clouds together, you're forming more stars. Therefore, you're going to have more bright stars that are visible. But right now what I want to look at is the ones where something's going on in the center of the galaxy. So you can see what's leading up, right? We're getting back to black holes again, that there's going to be something going on at the center of these galaxies that's printing out all this radiation. 
And the main thing that we're going to look at is a black hole in order for doing that, in order to do that. So looking at a couple different classes, we've got three different classes here of um, active galaxies. We have Seifert galaxies, which is one shown here. Looks like a spiral galaxy, right? And in order, just looking at it, it looks like a normal spiral galaxy. But if you study its brightness, it's actually a lot brighter than a typical than a typical spiral galaxy. Not just 10 times or 20 times brighter, but when you measure the energy output from its core, especially from the very central portion. So not just from out here where stars might be forming, with this very central portion, it's a thousand times brighter than a typical galaxy. So it looks a lot like a regular galaxy, but the core is so much brighter, so much more energy is being produced at that core. So a Seifert galaxy looks like a normal spiral galaxy. Is a normal is a normal put that in quotes, normal spiral with a very bright core. Core many thou- thousands of times brighter than a typical galaxy. So Seifert galaxies are one example of an active galaxy where something is going on down in this core. Something is producing extra energy over what we, over what we would normally produce. When we look at the intensity and the, that nucleus of the galaxy and we look at how bright it is, we find out that it varies in brightness very quickly. This time frame is from 1970 to 1995, so over 25 years, it was getting brighter and fainter and brighter and fainter and there's actually sort of patterns of brightness and faintness that actually go over within, you know, four or five years. And what that tells us is that the object that's producing that can't be any bigger than that. Can't be bigger than about four or five light years across. Because if it was bigger, if it was something that was a hundred light years across, we couldn't see variations this fast. By the time the light reaches us from the earliest and starts getting brighter from the near side, it's going to take a hundred years for the light from the far side. So if the whole thing is getting brighter, we're not going to know about the far side for a hundred until a hundred years after. So it would really wash out all of these variations. So when we see very long-term variations, it tells us it's a very large object. When we see very short-term variations, and with some of these objects, we've been looking at things down This is showing several years. We've looked at things that go down to months or days when they're varying rapidly up and down, telling us that this core has to be extremely small. So when we're starting to get an energy source in a very small place, very small area, the only thing that's going to fit there is going to be a black hole. So looking at those variations is giving us an idea of that. Radio galaxies are what they say They emit very strongly in the radio portion of the spectrum. So a strong radio source. Now, as I already told you, our galaxy is a strong radio source, but not if it were at large distances. It's sort of like the sun. The sun is a star, but the sun is very bright only because it's so close to us. Our galaxy is a radio source, but it's only a strong radio source because it's so close. If it were at the distance of other galaxies, it would be hardly be detectable as a radio source. There are others that we see that are, emit much, much stronger, so even over very large distances, we see them emitting strongly in the radio portion of the spectrum. And this is one example of what's seen here. This is a galaxy. Uh, this is what Centaurus A, a uh, strong radio source in the constellation of Centaurus and looks like a very large elliptical galaxy overall, but elliptical galaxies have no dust, right? Told you that last time. Well, this one's unusual. This one's got a big dust lane going through the middle. So a very unusual elliptical galaxy. If we look at it visibly, this is what we see. Could that be two, maybe two galaxies colliding? Could there be a spiral galaxy that's colliding into an elliptical galaxy that would account for this? That's certainly a possibility. When we look at it in the radio, there's the visible image, same thing we saw here. 
But now we look at it in the radio too. Most of the galaxy does not emit radio waves. We don't detect a lot from it. But we do detect radio material, radio emission streaming out from well beyond the actual galaxy itself. So if you look here, here's the edge of the visible galaxy here, but the radio emission is much further out. So something is going on. If you trace these back down, there's jets going right back down to the core. And in fact, if we zoom in and look at it in x-rays, remember that these active galaxies emit a lot of x-rays too. We can look down and see that there's some sort of source at the center and there's a jet of material streaming out of that center heading out into, into the space, the rest of the space around the galaxy. So a very large jet there when we zoom in emitting an x-rays, emitting a lot of x-rays, emitting a lot of radio radiation. Now those, but those great lobes that we see, we don't see them in an optical telescope. No matter how close you look, there's nothing there. So we don't see anything optically. So where do we get these? We can also see, oops, sorry, we can also see some radio galaxies that don't show those jets. So some show jets, Some don't show jets. This one is not showing any jets. Just a very strong galaxy. The little contours are showing where the radio brightness is. So very strong source here. Maybe a little bit of a jet coming out. Maybe a little bit. There's an or, or just another radio source up here. This one, just a very, very strong radio source. Very bright radio source, a galaxy that's emitting a lot of radio waves, but no sign of a jet. Now this may be a matter of exactly how we're looking at these galaxies. So it may be a matter of how we look at them. So it might be the same type of galaxy whether it has a jet or does not have a jet. Might be a matter of how we're looking. So here's this galaxy. There's the central energy source, that black hole, sending material out this way, material out this way. In the first case, we're looking here and we see energy streaming out. We see the jets. We see what we saw in that first image. We see the jets. We see the material streaming out from the center of the galaxy. But we don't get to control how we look at these galaxies. So just as likely as looking this way, we could be looking this way. So we could be looking at the galaxy like this straight down the path of the jet, that jet coming straight at us. In that case, we're not going to be able to see it. Right? The jet's coming straight at us. We're not going to be able to see that jet, distinguish it because it's going to be, we're going to be looking right down the axis of that jet. So, sort of as I can see the, we can see the ruler, I can see it real easily when I look at it now, but if I'm looking at it this way, coming straight at me, I'm not seeing very much. Right? I'm only seeing the little tiny bit of it that's coming straight towards me. It's going to look like it's just a centrally dominated one, whereas it really might be spread out a lot wider. So it might be a long jet coming at this observer, but they're not going to see it. They're only going to see that little tiny bit of it that's coming straight at them and then just detecting all that energy is coming from one spot. So it may be just a uh, matter of how we're observing these galaxies and we don't get a choice. It's not like we can go zipping around the universe and observe it from this location and this location. We're stuck with observing it just from here. So even if we could travel further in our solar system or further in our galaxy, it wouldn't help us. We'd have to be traveling around the universe, traveling many um, millions, hundreds of millions of light years, billions of light years to be able to see these from different, a different view. Many of these active galaxies have jets. Uh, this is, looks like M87. This looks like that one in Virgo that we looked at earlier, that uh, big elliptical galaxy. Here's what it looks like in visible light. Just looking at the galaxy itself. If we zoom into the core and try to look at that core in more detail, we then see a nice bright central core, but we see the beginnings of a jet. If we try to look in even further, and we actually go into the infrared to see that, we can now see there's a very bright source there. That would be the energy source at the center, the black hole, but whatever material is spiraling around into it. And then the jet of material streaming outward. So we're just continually zooming in here, looking closer and closer to the center of the galaxy. So many of these have jets. We saw jets with stars. Jets are also very common in galaxies as well. We see them in a lot of others. We also see a lot of signs of interaction and that may be how the, how the black hole is getting fed at the center through material colliding from other galaxies. 
Okay. So we, may, we also see signs of collisions of galaxies there that may help feed this black hole. Otherwise, it might just be dormant and quiet like most of the galaxies. Most galaxies that we see probably have this massive black hole at their center. Now the last one <coughs> I want to mention is the quasar. A quasar is Original name was a quasi-stellar radio source. That's how it got its name. So it looked like a star, sort of stellar, and it was a radio source. So it actually looked like a, a star that was emitting a lot of radio waves. But, so it looks like a star as we look at it here, but in fact, looked like a star to any large, even large telescopes. So it didn't look like a galaxy, looked like nothing other than a star. But they had really, really weird spectral lines that didn't match up with anything known here on Earth. Now, there are now some known as, that are not known to be radio sources. So they're sometimes called quasi-stellar objects. which is the, more the official name, or a QSO for quasi-stellar object. So sometimes you'll see them referred to as either one of those. But the quasar, the other name that's used, originally came from quasi-stellar radio source. So it looked like a star, but it was emitting a lot of radio waves. But the one thing that we really noticed about them is that they really had very unusual spectral lines, and in some cases had jets coming from them. Now we saw jets from some stars as they were forming, but typically normal stars didn't have jets coming from them. So something, un something quite unusual here. A lot of energy from this object. Very relatively bright. Emitting radio waves. Very unusual spectral lines and had jets coming out of them. What was found was that once we looked at them, here's a comparison spectrum. Here's one of the first uh, quasars to be developed, uh, to be understood is that eventually somebody realized that this pattern of lines that was seen here and here and here was very familiar. It wasn't as unusual as we thought. It was just in the wrong place. It's the same pattern of lines that you see here and here and here. Those are the three of the lines of hydrogen. But instead of being over here in the bluish portion of the spectrum where they're supposed to be, they're shifted way over closer to the red part of the spectrum. Now we already talked about Hubble's law. If something is shifted that much, that means it's moving away from us very quickly from the Doppler effect. And it means that they're at an incredible distance from us. So these objects are really perfectly normal spectrum, perfectly normal spectrum of a galaxy, just showing the hydrogen lines, but moving away from us at an incredible rate of speed. So we solved a problem, right? Everything's all great. Well, not quite. Because now that we know what they are, oh, they're just galaxies. They're just extremely distant galaxies. We can't see more than just their very energetic cores. That's all we can see. But that also means then because we're seeing these things that are billions of light years away, right? Things get fainter as you get further and further away from us, right? So imagine taking a flashlight out to a billion light years and shining it back here on Earth, shine it back towards Earth. Are you going to be able to see it? Not even close. Take the sun and put it out at hundreds or thousands of light years. You're not even going to be able to see the sun at that distance. But these objects are billions of light years away. We can see them out to the very edges of the universe. They've got to be some of the brightest things that exist in the universe. Otherwise, we'd never see them. Not that we didn't want to, but they'd just be too faint to be able to be seen. And it's an example of what we see here is the quasar is the object at the center. But they also emit those same jets just like some of the other galaxies do. So they'll emit the same jets, and as those jets interact with material, it brightens a lobe of material out here towards the edges. So what is causing these to be so bright? Well, let's look at what we've got. Active galaxies have all of these type of pro properties, or most of these type of properties. They have very high luminosity. They're extremely bright. We can see them at great distances. They're not behaving like stars. They're not giving us the emission of a star. They're looking like something else in terms of their energy that's being emitted. So they emit lots of x-rays, lots of radio waves, which a typical star does not. 
they have a variable energy. Sometimes they're a little brighter, sometimes they're a little fainter. And they vary very quickly, telling us that it's a very small nucleus that is causing these brightness changes. We see lots of signs of explosive activity, jets uh, being sent out of these centers of these quasars, these active galaxies. And we see broad emission lines. We looked at those before. When the emission lines get broad, it means that thing is spinning very quickly. The faster it's spinning, the broader those emission lines will get. If it wasn't spinning at all, then they'd be nice and narrow. But when, they're, when it's very broad, that means that it's, that it's rotating extremely fast. So what can, call, what can count, count for all this? What can account for something that's that bright, that's that small, that explosive, and rotating that quickly, and doesn't look anything like a star? Well, talked about last time, it's going to be a black hole at the center of these, of these galaxies that is actually the source of the energy. Now recall, an en- a galaxy cannot, a, a galaxy, a black hole cannot give energy of its own. It needs something spiraling into it. So it has to be material actually spiraling into the black hole. Because once it crosses that limit, once it crosses the event horizon, it's gone. We're not going to see it. So we won't be able to see it then, but as material is spiraling into the black hole, we can get all of these, all of these things occurring. So here's a model. Not, not a photograph, just an artist's conception of what we might see here. But there's the black hole at the center, you know, nothing coming out of that core. We can't see that. But all of this material in what we call an accretion disk of material spiraling into that black hole, so slowly spiraling its way closer and closer, is what's giving off the energy. As it spirals in, just as we had material forming around a star when a young star was forming, and it was forming a disk of material, it sent out beams perpendicular to that disk. An an active galaxy does the same thing. So that explains these intense jets that we see. If there's a magnetic field from this disk moving outward, that can help to confine the particles. And we can also get a lot of energy out of this material spiraling into the black hole. Once it gets in there again, it's done and, done and gone and we know nothing about it. But until it crosses that limit, you can be heating it up to incredibly high temperatures and creating a lot of energy out of that material before it finally disappears into the black hole. And in fact, we can probably take 10, 15, 20% of that matter. That's a lot of mass there. That's not just you know one little star, one little tiny cloud of dust. That's whole giant dust clouds that would be forming clusters of stars that are slowly spiraling into that black hole. And if we can convert 10 or 20% of that matter into energy, that's more than we can possibly imagine. Nuclear reactions are converting a tiny fraction of a percent of matter to energy, and yet are enough to power the sun for billions of years. So if you could convert 10 or 20% of the matter into energy, an amazing amount of energy that could be produced. So in these active galaxies, these, there, we talked about our suns. The one in our, for our sun might be, what did I say, about three and a half, four million times the mass of the sun. In an active galaxy, some of these are actually bigger. You might have things that are a billion times the mass of the sun at the center of one of these galaxies. The accretion disk, again, is not individual stars. It's not just a planet. That would be, you know, hardly any energy for it you have entire clouds. So this cloud cloud that would have formed a cluster of hundreds of stars is instead of forming a cluster is being pulled into this black hole and may give up 10, 20% of its mass. And E equals mc squared, Einstein's equation, says that if we're converting a lot of mass, if we're converting stars, many stars worth of mass into energy, that's a lot of energy that we're going to be creating. And that's enough energy to actually power these to power these active galaxies. Here's some just examples. Here's some of the jets. As we see in this one, this is visible light here. We see this and the radio waves that are coming out. When we actually look in and look in in the visible light in this case, we can see something very close and then a lot of material. You can almost see that disk around, around it when we zoom in and look at the central portions. So when we look at one of these galaxies, that central portion is extremely tiny. So there may be a whole disk of material orbiting around outside and then more material orbiting closer in. 
the black hole itself would be buried at the center there. Now, that obviously we can't see. We can only see its gravitational effects by how fast this material is moving around it. So we get some very amazing jets coming from some of these galaxies. Here's looking, this is again, this is looking at that uh, galaxy, that big elliptical galaxy in the constellation of Virgo. That giant one we were looking at, there's the central portion down there. There's the jet we looked at before, the jet streaming out of it. If we zoom in on just that core and we make measurements, we take a spectrum of just this part of the, the galaxy, just this part near the core of the galaxy, we can see that the light has been very red shifted on one side, very blue shifted on the other side. So that gas is not just in this small area very close to the center of the galaxy, but it's whipping around that at very high speeds. The bigger that shift, the bigger the red shift, the bigger the blue shift, the greater the velocity. And the greater the velocity, the more mass that's needed there at the center to do it. If there's no matter there, no gravity, to cause it to move that quickly, it's not going to move very fast at all. So we know that it's moving very, very quickly because of these measurements. Now, a lot of that we might see, you might expect to see x-rays and gamma rays. If you're converting matter to energy, as that happens in the sun, right? We convert matter to energy. It's all gamma rays at the center of the sun. And that is slowly reprocessed as that material works its way out from the center of the sun to the surface into visible light. So it also may depend on how we're looking at the, at the active galaxy. There's that black hole, little dot at the center. Here's the accretion disk of material spiraling into it. There's that dustier part further around that we saw in the previous actual photograph. And if you're looking here, you're going to see, not going to see as much of the X-ray and gamma ray emission because it's had to come through this dust to get to us. So the energy still gets out, but like the sun where it's converted from gamma rays into visible radiation, like that, then it is, um, it's converted here into infrared radiation, into visible as it's worked its way through that dust. If you're looking more down on it, straight down, you're going to see all of that. You're going to see x-rays and gamma rays coming straight out that didn't have to pass through this whole big giant, you know, big giant donut of dust to get, to get out to us. So depending on how you're looking at it, it might depend on what you see as well. Here you're going to see everything. When it says broad spectrum radiation just means you're seeing x-rays, you're seeing gamma rays, you're seeing visible light, you're seeing infrared, ultraviolet, and radio waves. You're seeing the whole spectrum. When you look this direction, try to look through that donut, it's, it's taking and reconverting a lot of those x-rays and gamma rays that are trying to come in this direction have to work their way through this big dust cloud. And that changes them over time. Changes, you know, one gamma ray into billions of x-rays and those into billions of ultraviolet and those into many uh, visible and into eventually into infrared. Same amount of energy comes out, but instead of having it in one uh, gamma ray, you might be seeing it in many billions of billions of infrared or visible light waves. Now, the kind of energy that's, that's emitted is what we call synchrotron radiation. Synchrotron radiation is, non, is what we call non-stellar radiation. It is not emitted by stars. It is emitted by particles following along magnetic field lines. So black lines here are the magnetic field of this object. So whatever magnetic field is created in that accretion disk is out there. Charged particles don't like to go across a magnetic field line. So particles won't flow through it. They don't want to go this way. They don't want to go that way. They're going to move right along it. And what they'll do is actually spiral around it. So they'll do a little spiral motion around the magnetic field lines. So as those particles, electrons primarily, are traveling along magnetic field lines, they emit what we call synchrotron radiation. Remember we talked way, way back about um, charge, moving charged particles as emit, accelerating charged particles as emitting uh, radiation. That's exactly what's happened here, happening here. We have electrons moving at almost the speed of light, very, very fast spiraling around because they're not moving in a straight line, they're being accelerated, and those accelerated particles are emitting radiation. This, we see that difference in the spectrum. 
Again, the purple line is thermal radiation. That's what a star looks like. Very little out here in the x-rays. Very little in the radio. A lot in the visible infrared ultraviolet. Synchrotron radiation spectrum from this type of thing emits a lot more radio waves and a lot less in terms of x-rays and gamma rays but still a lot more than a star would. And also note that in a star, this would be in a active galaxy, this would be way up above here. It would actually be shifted way up. So comparison of the spectrum here, but in terms of how much energy they're emitting, it's significantly, uh, significantly different. So that's the type of radiation and how it's produced. Instead of being produced by the heat of stars, as most of the radiation in a typical galaxy is, it's actually produced by electrons moving around the magnetic field very, very close to this central black hole. Questions? I'm going to stop there because I think all I have left is, yep, the review. And I figure it probably can't hurt for me to do the review tomorrow. See, right before the, I wanted to get through with the material so you had seen it all once, but it probably won't hurt me to go through the review right before that. So I'll pick up there, do the little bit of the review, and then go on to chapter 16 before the exam tomorrow. But that will cover all the material for the exam. And then what we're going to do the rest of the time is I have a lab. I hope this is a much shorter lab. I tried to pick out the one that I thought was the easiest and quickest one that we could do. So we got one more uh, starry night lab to do. And then if you need extra time afterwards, you have time if you still need to catch up on a lab, if you've missed anything, that'll give you some extra time to hopefully catch up on, catch up on that. Questions first?